did a panel together and she was actually talking about like Cecil fatigue. There were like so many stories about Cecil the Lion that people were almost like, there were almost too many of them. So I go to Delta and it's like, you know, can you imagine if the second line of every single one of those stories was that, oh yeah, and Delta Airlines like transported Cecil's like illegally poached and butchered body back to the United States, despite having been served with a petition with like half a million signatures asking them to stop that crap. Like you guys would look like morons and lose a crap ton of business. Hey everyone. You just heard from Chris Green, Animal Law Executive Director at Harvard University. If you'd like to hear more of that story on how he got the major U.S. air carriers to stop transporting hunting trophies, you'll definitely want to keep listening to this episode of the Veg Talk Podcast. Before we do get into the episode today, I'd like to check in with everyone, see how you're all doing. I do hope you had an awesome Thanksgiving for my American friends out there. Maybe one that was even plant-based. If not, there are definitely more holiday opportunities around the corner for some plant-based holiday feasts. And I'd love to hear what you guys have made or plan to make for the holidays. So send me a a message or a photo at VegTalk on Instagram. That's V-E-D-G-E-T-A-L-K. So Anna and I have made some ground on our trip since I last checked in during our Toronto stay. So there's been a fair bit of driving and also some amazing experiences along the way. Anna and I participated in two save movement events. One was the Toronto Cow Save, the other one was the Toronto Pig Save, which were extremely powerful uh, seeing animals right before they go to slaughter. This only solidified the reasons for me doing this very podcast and also living a vegan lifestyle. After Toronto, we caught up with Dr. Esselstyn and his wife Anne for a podcast and had an awesome plant-based lunch in Cleveland. We drove to Minneapolis after that for a couple of nights. We hit up one of our big bucket list places, which was the Herbivorous Butcher, and it did not disappoint. I would definitely recommend that if you are going to be in the Minneapolis area. So I'm now recording this intro from Badlands National Park in South Dakota, sitting in the van, sun is set, and we expect to see some bison around our campsite in the morning. We saw some bighorn sheep today and also some prairie dogs that are dotted around the campsite. Now on to this week's episode. So Chris has a really cool story on how he ended up at Harvard University. He initially wanted to be a veterinarian and was also heavily involved in music before deciding to dedicate the majority of his time to animal law. In this episode, you'll hear about different ways in which the law has been used to protect animals and also how Chris sees its importance as the movement continues to grow. I hope you guys enjoy the show. All right, we're rolling. We're at Harvard University today. Would you believe it? (laughs) I definitely didn't think growing up back in Beau Morris in southeast suburbs of Melbourne that I'd be recording a podcast at Harvard. It seems kind of cool, but I'm here with (laughs) Chris Green today who is the executive director of the Animal Law and Policy Program here at Harvard. So welcome, Chris, to hey, the Veg Talk Podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks very much, man. So I suppose I normally start off just learning a little bit about the background of the guest okay. um, and you know where you grew up and how you got onto your path. Because yeah. animal law seems like a very, I suppose, very niche hmm. um you know, domain to work in nowadays. Sure. I hope it's growing. We'll hear from you more. It certainly is, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, whether or not this was always at the forefront of your mind or maybe if there was something else you were 
planning yeah. on. But yeah. yeah, it'd be it'd be cool to hear a little bit about you. Okay. Um so yeah, I uh I currently um manage a farm that's remained in my family for 180 years in central Illinois in the Midwest. Uh and so, you know, spent a bunch of time there as a child. And back then, now it's all corn and beans, uh, edamame, I like to say. Uh, but we, um, you know, as a child, there were animals there. And so I think there were dairy cattle, and there were pigs and chickens and, you know, goats and sheep and stuff. Um, but it was the piglets especially, the pigs spending time with them and just seeing how unique and individual they were. Um, you could have a litter, and this one over here would be like super shy, and this other one over here would be like bonkers and bouncing off the walls. They just like they were actual individuals uh, with their own sort of personalities, and just made me realize that they were sort of had a value that was greater than just the weight of their flesh, which is how they were kind of typically evaluated by by others, and often still are today, sadly. But uh, yeah, that's what just got me really caring about those things in early age, and I was kind of like came out of the shoot, almost like vegan out of the shoot. Like I've never drank a full glass of milk in my life. I used to think cheese was like the grossest thing in the world. I never even ate cheese till I was like 12. And sadly, my mom sort of plied me on it thinking I needed more protein or something and didn't really, I'd always go eat like the, we'd go out and I'd, I'd eat bread and gravy. I'd get like the roast beef sandwich without the roast beef, just with like the bread and gravy and mashed potatoes and stuff. So I, you know, I haven't really, I, I formally stopped eating all animals about 31 years ago. Um, but yeah, so it was always kind of leaning that way. And I just, then we moved to England, uh, when I was nine, I spent about four or five years there and read all the James Harriet books. And there was actually a TV series called Creatures Great and Small about a rural veterinarian. And I always thought that that's what I would do. Um, my parents were both in the music industry as well. So I kind of had both those sort of inputs. Um, so then, you know, got through high school and then, uh, had a high school guidance counselor basically talk me out of trying to be a veterinarian saying I'd never get good enough grades to get into vet school. And granted my high school grades were sort of sloppy, but, uh, I ended up coming here to Harvard law school and getting my law degree here. Uh, but, um, so I, you know, I, I went back and when I got back to the U S and I thought, you know, how can I, how can I have the biggest sort of impact? And it seemed to me environmental issues were really important. This is like the late eighties, mid eighties. Um, and I, I stumbled into an environmental science course that was team taught by an economist, a sociologist, and a biologist. And it really was eye-opening that, wow, the first time I'd actually taken a class that was sort of interdisciplinary. And when you have these problems that are themselves interdisciplinary in nature, it only makes sense that any solutions would have to be sort of interdisciplinary as well. And so I came back to the University of Illinois, uh, closer to home, and uh, I... Uh, I found all these great courses in environmental science, but I couldn't find any degree program. And so at orientation, I put my hand up. I was like, am I missing something here? And he's like, yeah, there's not really one. And it was basically because of turf battling. You know, people, all these different departments, like, oh, no, it's surely an issue of economic consumer behavior. Like, oh, no, it's all biology and chemistry. And, oh, it's environmental engineering. And so basically I kind of met with heads of all these different departments, and they allowed me to kind of create University of Illinois' first ever environmental science degree. So I had the head of like environmental engineering, um, ecology, ethology, and evolution, urban planning, and another just all sort of ad as service advisors. And, um, and it was great. It was fantastic. And so then all my profs were like, you should really go to law school to get some sort of enforcement clout because no one's really paying attention to us. Um, and so I came here to law school to do environmental law, and I kind of was a little disenchanted with it. Um, I found, you know, Arguing parts per billion in some administrative law court in the bowels of Washington didn't really seem to me to be like looking at the bigger picture of stuff. And it's great. And that works amazing work. And it's great that people do it just for my own personality type. I didn't think it would that was that good of a fit. 
so at the time, my old band was getting signed to a major label, and so I, I decided to take a leave of absence from law school, which my grandmother called a leave of senses, and uh, uh, spent the next six years playing and then touring, uh, managing a bunch of rock bands. Um, and during that time, I really thought hard about kind of what I wanted to do, and I realized my first passion was actually doing hands-on caring work. So I uh, applied to vet school at the University of Illinois, and uh, they had a spot for me, and so I was all set to go to vet school. And then the dean of students here at Harvard called me back up and said, hey, man, it's been six years. The administrative board is changing. Like, this could be your window closing if you want to come back. And like, actually, I think I'm going to go to vet school instead of going back to law school. And she's like, wow, that's funny you say that because we've got this guy, Stephen Wise, coming in next year to teach our first ever animal rights law course. Uh, and she's like, it's literally front page news in New York Times. So, and at the time, Harvard was only the ninth school to teach an animal law course. So, looked into it and looked great. And Steve seemed really interesting. So, I decided in the vet school, we're like, great, we'll hold you a spot. You'd be stupid not to finish off law school. You've done the hard year. So, I came back here pretty much just to take the course with Steve. And it, kind of just altered the trajectory sort of for my career um became really close with him and then ha- helped him do some writing like his first uh golden gate law review article that he wrote kind of fleshing out the ideas of using uh um habeas corpus and hominy replegiando for primates uh non-human primates um i sort of helped him with that quite a bit uh and so yeah it's a it was a sort of circuitous path but that's sort of kind of what got me back here and what got me focused on animal law per se but um yeah, so very cool. So for those that don't know, the how do you pronounce that? Is it habeas corpus? Habeas habeas corpus. corpus. Can you explain that for everyone? Uh, it means I think it means sort of directly translated. It's like you know, produce the body or bring me the body, and it's it's a very old tenet of law that is used to. Uh, it's the sort of viewed as the last resort for anyone who is any person who is being detained wrongfully or against their will. And so you can go before some sort of magistrate that then issues a writ of habeas corpus, meaning, you know, bring this person here in front of me so I can make sure that they're actually still alive even. Uh, And then it forces the captor to justify uh, the rationale for why they are keeping this other person captive. Got and it. so see what Steve is trying to do with the non-human rights project, non-human rights project is apply habeas corpus to non-human animals that are being held captive and made to do things such as biomedical research or just languishing in some sort of roadside zoo or, you know, being forced to perform in sort of public. Uh, so he's looking at primates, chimpanzees and elephants so far is what they've worked on. And is the main problem with that the kind of the law as it stands today you can apply it to humans or property that's from what uh well it's persons so, so the, what's okay. what's what's the what's interesting is that it's actually legal persons and so that none of it actually says humans uh and so you've got these weird quirks in the law where in the united states corporations are considered legal persons um you've got rivers in uh i think new zealand or, or india And you've got these sort of Hindu icons. You've got all these other sort of non-humans that have been designated legal personhood. Uh, So for many of the same reasons that these other things have been, uh, former legal things have become legal persons, Steve is trying to expand that rationale and apply it to non-human 
animals. Yeah. Super interesting. Yeah. Must, and you know, it's, yeah. and it's, I'm always one of those is that who thinks, you know, I mean, I came up through the sciences. So diversity is the main driver and savior of, of everything. Uh, it's what protects any sort of population or species from any sort of adverse stimulus, uh, you know, or thing that could kill everybody off. There's going to always going to having genetic diversity allows some to survive. Um, and all of a sudden there could be a change in conditions where some have this certain genetically linked trait that could make them more survivable or adaptable. Um, and so you never know. So I'm always diversity is just so fundamentally important to me. And I just think there should be a, a wide diversity of approaches and viewpoints. And so, um, you know, there are some that quibble that think that, you know, this sort of rights-based approach is, is something that's attention grabbing. It might not ultimately be successful, but who knows who's to say like, and it's, you know, no scum off anyone else's nose if it's not taken. You know, if you've got folks like the Non-Human Rights Project who are willing to put in the time and energy. I mean, it certainly is Steve's, you know, life's work and mission. Uh, so who's to say? Uh, and he, you know, he is one of the most prolific. I think he's taught more animal law courses than anybody. Uh, or taught animal law more places than anybody. And I think he's probably published more animal law related law reviews and books than just about anyone else in the field. And, and what was interesting is when I came here to take the class with Steve, um, his book rattling the cage came out, this was spring of 2000. And so his book rattling the cage came out like while we were taking the class. And so it went from like animal, what never heard of it to like animal law being like all over the meat public media. So within a few weeks and he's on NPR, he's literally debating Larry tribe, one of Harvard's most famous law professors, you know, debating Larry Tribe down at Faneuil Hall here in Boston. I mean, it was just like this, kind of like, uh, kind of like how um, Peter Singer's Animal Liberation is considered the sort of foundational text of the modern animal rights movement. I've always said that Rattling the Cage was sort of the foundational text that made people recognize animal law as sort of a, a distinct and valid discipline all of its own. So what what was it about, Rattling the Cage? It was basically him laying out this, these basic arguments about sort of primate cognition and kind of expanding on Peter Singer's idea that in order to be intellectually and in Steve's mind legally consistent, you're either going to have to expand protections to include some non-humans or you're going to have to contract them to exclude some humans who may not have kind of maybe intellectual capacity of a, of a, of a, of a regular human being. So, um, you know, anencephalitic babies or people who've suffered, you know, traumatic brain injuries or something like that. So in order to be consistent, given the criteria that they give for defining why certain beings receive, receive protections of basic protections of sort of like bodily integrity and things like that. Um, you know, again, you're either going to have to, cause you know, you've got chimpanzees that have the intellect of maybe around a four-year-old child. So there's no real, he was just trying to show that there's no real rationally defensible line or rationale for drawing the line at species. Got it. Yeah. And that's kind of where we are still today in some respect, isn't it? We're really having trouble just feeling empathy for, for other species or people that aren't in the normal or, or, grain just, of or just the same color as us exactly yeah, exactly born in a different country or whatever yeah. it's just so we're still struggling with it yeah uh struggling but you know there are great 
it's interesting though is that you know the public public sentiment on these issues has always been extremely high like any sort of polling it's always like sort of high 80s low 90s of mm-hmm. people wanting to see increased animal protection and i think there was an actual uh, a poll that was done that i'm not sure get the wording right but it was like 94 percent of americans felt that animals raised for food even not just like fluffy cute animals but animals raised for food should be free from abuse and cruelty while mm-hmm. they are raised, and it's just, which, you know, sadly, nothing could be further from the truth right now. But yep. I mean, the fact that that's what people, how people really feel, and that shows in when people are allowed to directly vote. So, um, you know, one way, and traditionally, whenever anyone would try to pass farmed animal protection bills, um, they would almost always have to go through a state or federal uh, legislative agriculture committee. Uh, that's who these you got assigned to. Ag committees, which are typically stacked with folks from who represent agricultural areas or have ties to industry. And so Massachusetts, super blue state, really progressive on many issues. Um, they had tried uh, advocates here with uh, the MSPCA and HSUS and others had tried for like eight years straight to get a farmed animal protection bill. And simply that one that would ban confining farmed animals uh sort of in very extreme forms of of caging so banning gestation crates for for uh sows banning uh battery cages for egg laying hens and banning the tethering of veal um so eight years straight never made it the ag committee would always just shut it down even though polling showed that around you know 76 to 80 percent of of massachusetts voters and residents supported this measure this elected body sort of defying the will of the people and 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 denying this how do they do that they just they just don't pass it so uh, any any piece of legislation has to first get out of a committee has to pass a committee vote before it goes to the full and it's a way of just filtering out so it does serve a valid function but sometimes it can perform this gatekeeping function that again subverts the the will of the majority of the populace so after eight years of that um, they just decide to do uh, last year or last election here in 2016 did a ballot initiative where you can kind of circumvent the legislature and take this question directly to the voters. And it passed by 77.7 percent, the single largest margin of victory of any ballot initiative uh, tied for this most votes of any ballot initiative in Massachusetts history. And the same thing happened in California with Proposition 8, or uh, um, which then uh, – uh, Basically, did the same thing. Banned any uh, use u- any production methods using those same types of uh, extreme confinement. But what the Massachusetts law did is uh, um, go a step further and ban the sale of those items. So if now a, a California egg producer wants to sell eggs into Massachusetts, they have to be cage free. So just this coming Tuesday, uh, California has a new proposition, uh, Prop Prop Twelve which would uh, basically mirror Massachusetts law and ban the sale of any products in California that were raised using those sort of inhumane methods. Um, And, you know, California, I think, is like the fifth or sixth largest economy in the world just on its own. So there's a it's a massive, massive uh, driver. Um, And you see they've done the same thing with sort of fuel efficiency standards and things like that, where California will have more stringent standards than the federal government. And then that sort of then the industry, like, well, we're not going to make two or three different types of cars. So basically the California standards become the de facto national mm. standard. Yeah, they're definitely shifting the the needle California. Yeah, and, and it just shows you that when 
when the American populace is allowed to vote directly on these issues, they, you know, they, they, they go by, the polls aren't just sort of empty polls. They really do get out and vote. Yeah, I think it's, with animals, it's more of a heartfelt thing as well. If, if we're not making the connection between what we really think and our food choices, when presented the question, I think people are still going to answer more than likely favorably towards animals. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, it, and it transcends uh, all sorts of traditional uh, groupings. So um, after getting done with law school, I, I did entertainment stuff for another 10 years or so and primarily did the animal law stuff on the side. I, I finished law school, spent two years writing this big piece of scholarship on sort of companion animal valuation and veterinary malpractice. So I would lecture around and speak at conferences on that, but um, it wasn't the main my main source of uh, income. And then... Uh, in 2012, about six years ago, I decided to sort of reverse that ratio and uh, make animal law the central focus of my time again. So uh, I ended up uh, getting hired by the Animal Legal Defense Fund to start a legislative uh, division for them. And one of the issues I worked on was was AGAG. And so a great classic example um, was in Arizona. There was this awful bill um, – that this legislator got kind of got talked into. She tried to get a, a lot of times too, you'll see like the uh, farm state farm bureaus and other ag groups will kill any bill um, on animal protection, even if it has nothing to do with farmed animals, just because they view it as a slippery slope. So there's some bills that just, we don't, there's a bill in Arizona, I think it was going to add some uh, mental counseling uh, evaluation and counseling for anyone convicted of animal cruelty. And it added some additional provisions related to animal hoarding and, uh, you know, the state, the cattlemen, Arizona cattlemen just killed it. And then they went to the legislator and said, you know, we'll let you have your little cat and dog bill if you allow us to tack on like the 10 worst things you want to do to farmed animals. And egregiously, she, this Katie Brophy McGee, this uh, Arizona legislator, agreed to that deal without consulting with any of the, you know, Arizona animal protection movement or anything. And so here comes this awful bill that would have like taken animal, taken livestock out of the cruelty code, had like an ag gag provision, uh, wouldn't allow any law enforcement officers to investigate farmed animal cruelty at all. Only the, the state, uh, U.S. The state ag department, and they only had like a couple investigators for the entire state. I mean, it was just it was just awful. Um, so we killed it the first year, killed it again the second year. And in the third year, and there's a coalition of animal advocacy groups, I think there's like 160 different groups that signed on. There's a really great uh, grouping and coordination uh, between sort of local groups on the ground in Arizona and some of the national organizations like ALDF and HSUS and others. It was really, and ASPCA, I mean, it was really fantastic. Um, but then, uh, I think the third time, it uh, looked like we'd had it killed, it was bottled up. And then Arizona has this weird thing where you can just sort of cut paste like language into like existing bills that have already made it through committee. Really, we call them like zombie bills or striker bills, oh. where you think you've killed something, all of a sudden it just yep. like pops up back from the dead. So can I just stop you there? So yeah. they're using something from a separate case, not a case. It's a, it's or a, a law. separate bill. Yeah, law? yeah. They're you using can, you can language from a separate law that passed. That hasn't passed. It's no. made it through committee. Okay, it's yet to be voted on. But you can basically go back in and completely like just cut and paste completely new language into it. It's, huh. it. it sounds bizarre and it is. Uh, so this has happened two weeks before the end of the session. So all of a sudden, like everyone has to like jump into hyperdrive and try and kill this thing. And it, and it, there wasn't enough time. So it ended up passing the legislature, uh, and going on to the governor's desk, governor Ducey, who had just been elected a year or two before and was pressed pretty hard on this issue because we knew that it had been tried a couple of times. 
So it went to his desk on a Thursday afternoon. I think he had five days to decide whether or not to sign or veto it. So all the animal protection groups spring into action, reach out to all their supporters. Um, and we, uh, um, so by that following Monday, a few days later, uh, the advocacy community had driven 19,248 calls or emails into his office asking him to veto the bill. Guess how many he got asking him to sign it? Three. <laughs> so when you're an elected official, even, you know, 19,248 to three is pretty simple math. Uh, so he vetoed it. And so um, here you have a Republican governor in a state with a heavily Republican-dominated legislature vetoing a bill that was pushed by one of the biggest industries in his state. But he did it because he knew that's what the voters wanted. And the polling ahead showed this. It showed about uh, 87% of Arizona voters opposed this. Uh, even 80% of Republican voters, rural voters, no matter how you slice it, you know, male, female, it was just, it was, it's pretty consistent across the board. So it's really great to actually see, you know, see this go into action and see the public will sort of expressed. That's amazing. Yeah, and that's why I like litigation. I, you know, there's kind of two different paths you can go in animal law. Well, there's a lot of different paths, but two of the primary yep. ones are either litigation or legislation. And we would joke around, call them like you know the punchers versus the huggers. And I, I was I was always much more interested in in the legislative side of things. And it seemed you know the the, the more democratic nature of it and just the chances for sort of coalition building and things. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so, for anyone not familiar. What is an ag-gag law? Ag-gag law is, uh, so, uh, as you, we showed a film last night, we had Joanne MacArthur here, and we showed the film about her work uh, called The Ghost in Our Machine, um, and that documents uh, a lot of undercover investigations. So those are uh, when you have someone go in, either be, get a job and be hired by a, a, a facility, or sort of sneak in after hours, and document the sort of abuse that's going on there, uh, sometimes including like outright lawbreaking. So there were a lot of quite high-profile uh, undercover investigations that were happening in the, um, in the, you know, after around 2010 or so. So the industry's response, you know, like, oh, my God, we've got all these – all these you know, ag facilities who are being caught on camera of, you know, violating the law. You think, oh – normal person think, okay, we need to stop them from violating the law. They're like, oh no, we need to stop these people from getting in and catching us violating the law. So mm. they start to pass these bills that would make it a, a crime, an actual criminal offense to go onto an agricultural facility and, you know, take photographs or video record or audio record, or would make it a crime to apply for a job and get hired for a job at one of these places using what they call false pretenses or would demand, we call it quick reporting laws, which again are pretty insidious where they kind of couch themselves as an animal protection measure where they say any animal cruelty that's witnessed has to be reported within like say 24 hours or something like that. And it, which you think would be a good thing. Like, yeah, we just want to you know, know about this cruelty as soon as we can and make sure it stops. But no, what they want to do is they just want to force any undercover investigators to out themselves immediately. It'd be like if you had a, uh, you know, a DEA agent who spends months infiltrating a sort of uh, a narcotics ring and then has to expose themselves the minute they see a $5 drug buy, you know, hand-to-hand -hand drug buy. Like you're never going to, again, get the their importers or the kingpins or whatever because you're, you're never going to make it past those lower-level offenders. So the same thing happens if someone's filming in a factory farm. Uh, 
in order to sort of most of these, you know, the lower skilled, lower income uh, workers are, you know, being forced to do a lot of this conduct uh, at the behest of, of management and owners of some of these facilities. And um, but there's no way you can sort of document that unless you can show that there was actually a sort of pattern of abuse. And and, that, and you're never going to be able to get that sort of uh, documentation if you have to sort of turn over all your information to local authorities within 24 hours. So. So when did all this begin to happen, the ag-gag laws? Well, there are a few that were passed in the early 90s. I think around 1991, uh, there were three states, I think uh, Montana, Kansas, and I can't remember if were, maybe Nebraska, um, that uh, were sort of aimed at, they're aimed at sort of like people who were going in and, and sort of uh, de-causing damage. They were sort of like augmented anti-trespassing leagues. So there's like, I think, a a lab in uh, a, a research lab in University of Wisconsin that was damaged, and so it was sort of they were kind of aiming at that. The other three popped off and just kind of disappeared, uh, or stayed there, but that no one heard anything about this again. And then um, it was a uh, there's a group called ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, that are this extremely conservative group that's behind a lot of the you know sort of uh, voter suppression laws. Uh, this is like sort of a lot of laws impacting women's right to choose. There are or, a bunch of stuff. I've seen them in documentaries, I yeah. think, around um, politics and... All sorts of yeah. stuff. I mean, forcing women to undergo these invasive procedures when they would want to terminate a pregnancy, yep. just horrible things. So they drafted this thing called the Animal Enterprise uh, Terrorism... It was actually called something else before that, but it eventually became the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. Um, that essentially reframed animal rights advocates as terrorists. And if you caused any sort of um, economic damage even to a, to a, an entity, you could be sort of liable. And there was sort of, the, I think, joint and several liability where even if you were with somebody, you didn't even know somebody, and they caused damage, you yourself, if you were affiliated with them somehow, could still be held liable. Just considered one of the most awful pieces of legislation as far as like sort of any sort of social justice movement goes. Um, were they able to get that through quickly? Yes. Yep. Anything with terrorism in a title, you know, just sailed through. Uh, so, but amazingly, they had this ag egg provision in there that was considered too extreme even for the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act. So it was like, it was removed from the, the final version that was passed. So after a couple of years go by, you know, they still have this language sitting around. So Alex like, well, heck, let's just try this at the state level. And so when, when all these undercover investigations started really rising and having an impact, um, you see these, these, these laws get sort of, uh, you know, these pieces of legislation get tried and most of them fail, but a few of them pass. And I think there's now seven, uh, and then you've seen an additional, but a couple of them been struck down. So my former organization, the animal legal defense fund, mm-hmm. um, so I was, that's one of the main things I was working on. I would yep. go in and try and parachute in and try and kill some of these ag gag bills and it gotcha. was really successful. I think, I think I started in 2013, uh, I think in that year, the record was like 15 to 1 uh, bills that we killed uh, to only one passing. Um, and that has since been struck down. Uh, and then I think that following year, none passed. Uh, there has been a bit of a morphing, uh, like an ag-gag, I call like 3.0. Um, North Carolina and Arkansas have passed those. And those those don't say anything about agriculture. They, they basically reframe themselves as sort of private property rights bills. Um, hmm. And so those... Uh, yeah, those have those those are in the, on the books, and it's a little unclear exactly how they might be applied. So we're kind of waiting to see on that. But um, but anyway, so uh, 
Yeah, so the Animal Legal Defense Fund decided to actually just file challenges to these laws because they're pretty patently unconstitutional, yep. uh, restricting restricting free speech and uh, equal protection laws and things like that. Um, and so they were successful. So they've challenged both Idaho and Utah so far, and both of those were struck down as unconstitutional. Uh, and now they're moving; they're quite far down the road in litigation challenging Iowa's ag gag law. So, um, and you know, the writing's sort of on the wall. I mean, there were some that kind of were concerned that. Uh, that this litigation might be a little dangerous uh, in case you would to lose um, and have these laws declared constitutional, mm. or they might the decision the judicial decisions might be drafted in a way that allows someone to sort of craft like the perfect ag gag law. But I think those fears are a little overblown in that now that the public has really caught on. I mean, because you're basically just like it's as anti-transparent as you can get. You're just saying no one should see what we're doing because it's that heinous, and it really makes ag industry look like they've got something to hide they now realize how that itself made them look bad. So, I mean, I know that Wisconsin was one of the largest dairy states. They'd been working on an ag gag law for about two or three years, had all these different experts vetting it, and we were waiting any day, and it, it never saw the light of day. Because um, they, they realized politically, it's just, just the time has sort of passed for ag gag laws. So ultimately, from the outset, once, I suppose once, light started to shine on their industry and it became more you know topical in the public eye they really got defensive off the bat and and in retrospect now that we're looking back at that and you know our movement is moving forward you know it's getting stronger and stronger people are starting to actually learn about these laws that happened in the past because I suppose when they were happening, you know, was it was it known widely that these a, were a little, set laws and people a, were a little bit, but they're going through legislators. Like I said, they're going through legislators, and you know, I guess the vast majority of Americans have no idea, like how many no every you know how many laws are passed at the state level and interstate each year, and they got some attention. And we certainly again were really successful in, in you know embarrassing people and getting these shut down. But when you've got a state like Idaho, that's like you know, heavily has heavy ties to the ag industry. Um, but the great thing is these people, like they can't, it's, it's great that they're just, they're transparent without even realizing they're being transparent. Mm. So one of the, uh, things that kind of help determine the unconstitutionally unconstitutionality of something is if you're targeting a particular type of speech or a particular type of speaker and in both the legislative record, uh, of the hearings that they were having about these laws in both Idaho and Utah, the stuff that was coming out of these legislators' mouths, of, you know, them themselves give, giving their own reasons for why they're passing it. And there's like, you know, calling names, like these invading hordes of these marauding animal rights activists and, um, and literally saying, oh, we don't have a problem with them actually capturing the footage. It's just when they go and disseminate it on the internet, which is, again, classic. Constitutional, mm-hmm. so it's just amazing that these people are sort of as, you know, unwittingly transparent as they are because it just, I mean, the, so there's and the way both of these lawsuits uh, ended up was that you know the first step you you have in a civil lawsuit usually the the defending party files like a motion to dismiss where they go to the judge and say hey look this case is so meritless you don't even need to waste your time with holding a trial because they just can't even prove it based on the face of it. Um, that's the first hurdle to overcome. Then you, if you overcome that hurdle, uh, it often goes to trial. But 
if the in both of those cases, the opinions written by the federal judges denying the motion to dismiss, both of those were so strong that they sort of indicated that the opposite is true, where the 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 moving party, the the plaintiffs, can file what's called a motion for summary judgment, where they basically say the opposite thing. You know what? Our case is so strong and just facially on the facts that you don't even need to waste time holding a trial because just with the facts in front of you, you can already you can already see that this is blatantly unconstitutional. And that's what actually happened in both of those cases, both in Utah and Idaho, where both of these went away on motion for summary judgment. It didn't even involve like a full trial just because the years are so blatantly unconstitutional. Yeah, it's interesting. So it's like fully reversed from these ag-gag laws getting passed in the first place to then being called unconstitutional and not even needing a trial yeah. to go forward. Yeah. Like I said, though, there's still a couple things hanging out there. You still have this like North Carolina, Arkansas yeah. kind of version that, you know, isn't specifically tar- doesn't specifically say it only applies to agriculture, yep. but it's likely that that's what the goal is. So is we'll that see. how they're going to go about it now? Well, they're going to the try and diff- go around? The different and- thing there is that that, so what makes it unconstitutional is because you're actually making it a state crime. And so that means it's a government action, um, and it's the government that is prohibited from violating these various constitutional provisions. Uh, what the North Carolina and Arkansas laws do is that they create like a civil right of action, um, which is not the government versus the, the individual. It's sort of like two individuals against each other. So basically this just creates a provision whereby the owner of one of these facilities can file a civil lawsuit for monetary damages uh, against anyone who would violate them and sort of film on their property or something like that. Um, So it's yet to be seen how that will play out. Um, And there's already, there's, there's existing litigation challenges to that one as well. Okay. Okay. So apart from farmed (laughs) animals, um, what other, you know, what other focuses did you have while you were there at the animal? Uh, that's one thing I actually really liked about the Animal League of Defense Fund is that they had a really broad array. And I, I'd spent, honestly, about 10 years straight focusing on one particular issue, and that was uh, sort of the the value, the emotional value of people's cats and dogs and how that was recognized or not recognized in the legal system. Um, my thinking that, you know, Steve wrote Rallying the Cage – and that was amazing because it got all the sort of intelligentsia, if you will, sort of thinking about that issue who hadn't before. As you've got guys like Dershowitz and Tribe and you know Judge Posner and all these really great legal minds who are suddenly like turning them to you know thinking about these these matters. Um, but for a lot of average Americans, it was still words on a page because they never actually interacted with a chimpanzee or a bonobo. Um, and so I decided to kind of go the, the other route and focus on. So he he was focusing on the animals that are most you know genetically, biologically, intellectually similar to us. Um, I wanted to focus on the animals that were sort of emotionally closest to us, uh, everyone's cats and dogs, um, as a way of trying to get to the same ultimate goal of, of having finding a way for all animals to sort of be tra- treated better under the law. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, and most people are just shocked when they find that, like, you know, in vast majority of jurisdictions in this country, someone could walk in your house, beat your dog or cat to death in front of you, uh, spit in your face and walk out and like all you could sue them for was just the cost of like buying another dog or cat you mm-hmm. know you couldn't get any sort of emotional damages whatsoever even though you'd witness this horrible thing so um, and so my thinking is that and you know I had colleagues 
who would be like, dude, American cats and dogs are the most pampered four-legged beings on the planet. Mm -hmm. Why are you spending your time focusing on them rather than like the 9 billion farmed animals each year that are, you know, horribly slaughtered in this country? And, you know, at the time, I think it was just like, look, you know, if we're still treating even these like exalted pampered cats and dogs from a legal perspective, treating cats and dogs like tables and chairs, pigs and chickens don't stand a chance. Um, so th it was really interesting for me to go to LDF and, and, and work on a lot of different issues. So, um, a big thing we worked on was captive exotics there. I spent about a month of my life that I'll never get back in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. There was a, a tiger named Tony who was kept in a cage at a truck stop gas station and, uh, just sort of has a lure. It's right outside. Um, it was in a town called Grosse Tet, uh, Louisiana, which is about 15 miles outside uh, Baton Rouge, which is the home of LSU University. And their mascot is a tiger who's also a, a captive tiger. I think Mike the Tiger, his name is. Um, and so they're the LSU Tigers. So this guy had this truck stop with a you know cage in it to try and like, lure alums in to come buy gas there on their way to and from football games. It's an interesting way to go about it. Yeah, really depressing, really yep. sad uh, affair. Um, so, yeah, we worked on a bunch of different issues. That was one. Worked on some issues related to sort of like animal cruelty, um, some things like whether or not there should be like a registry for folks that are convicted of animal cruelty. Um, yeah, a lot of different interesting topics. Did you do anything around um, airlines transporting hunting trophies? Yes, that was actually... Not my official capacity at ALDF, uh, honestly. I'd, uh, so I had, I had an open-heart surgery uh, about four years ago, mm -hmm. and um, obviously wasn't allowed to fly. For, and I, I fly like crazy. Um, wasn't allowed to travel for about eight weeks or so. Um, and so as soon as I got the green light, I sort of went full bore to catch up on things. And I literally, I think I flew 26,000 miles in like 10 days, like the circumference of the globe. Um <laughs> Needless to say, like my body didn't react well to that. I, ended up, I think I got like pneumonia or something. So it was kind of like on my ass in bed. And I, I promised my family and promised work I wouldn't, you know, work. Because, you know, it's difficult when you, you know, when your job is actually something that's also like your greatest passion. Like mm -hmm. you just find yourself doing it 24 hours a day often. Um, so I'm technically sick, promised everyone I wouldn't formally do any work. And uh, so I'm just like looking at my Facebook on my phone, stupid phone. And I see this notification about how South African Airways had uh, unilaterally just decided to ban the transport of, uh, of say, they would no longer transport African hunting trophies. And there's all this amazing language that they put forth about how just what a, a precious resource it was for their country in South Africa. And like the vast more, many more people come there to witness these majestic animals than to shoot them. And you know, eventually if people just keep coming and shooting, there's not going to be any more of them. So it just, even from a straight economic point of view, it makes absolutely no sense. Um, and so the very last line of this article said, you know, that Delta airlines, the only U S based carrier with direct service to South Africa refused to comment for this article. And so I was like, literally like charter member of Delta's like diamond medallion status. Like one of their like best customers, like 26, thousand miles in 10 days yeah the year yep. of my heart surgery even after that 20 the year of my heart surgery even not being able to fly for two months was that was the first year i'd flown fewer than a hundred thousand miles and i still flew like 89 that year eighty nine thousand. so um so yeah i was like well man like i'd be like the ideal person to sort of ask them to sort of do the right thing and come along and so a close friend of mine uh uh and modi uh was handling all these sort of animal issues for change.org so i just kind of called him up like 
hey, man, do you think this would be something that change might be interested in? He's like, absolutely. So we kind of collaborated to put this petition together. Um, and if you, have, if you really want to spend a depressing afternoon, try, uh, you know, spending a day sorting through photo sites, looking for like the quote unquote perfect uh, trophy hunting photograph, just horribly depressing. Uh, so anyway, got this petition out the door and it kind of, and you know, another thing about change.org is that they like petitions to come from individuals rather than uh, entities. So it worked out well that I could just do this in my individual capacity. Cause at the time I was also the chair of the American Bar Association's animal law committee. So this was like not to do with any of my affiliation, just Chris Green citizen put this thing out there. And uh, so yeah, it took off and then garnered like close to five, 400,000 signatures. Um, and this was in like May of, uh, 2015. And then a few months go by, sadly, South African, South African Airways decided to like rescind. They got a bunch of pressure from trophy hunting groups and they rescind their ban. And so I was like, uh, I was just super depressed thinking there's no way now that Delta is going to do something. Cause they've got, they've lost the you know, political cover now. Then the Cecil the Lion story breaks, uh, in late July, um, and a lot of people don't know this, but uh, even the story broke around like July 27th, my birthday, it, it actually, Cecil was killed in uh, earlier July, like around like the 3rd or 4th of July. Um, so the story breaks, everyone's looking into it, and then I kind of do the math. I'm like, so the guy who killed uh, Cecil was this dentist named Walter Palmer, and who happened to be from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Reasons that's relevant is Minneapolis, Minnesota happens to be Delta's third largest hub, U.S. hub. And then with them being the only airline with direct service to South Africa, I, I pretty much bet that he himself was a Delta customer. So contacted them again and said, hey, look, you know, you guys dodged a huge bullet here. Because like I said, he was, you know, Cecil was killed earlier before this came out. Like he easily could have transported his, you know, body back, and, you know, on Delta uh, the animal was confiscated there, but I said to them, I mean, uh, the, the woman who runs the dodo, uh, we did a panel together and she was actually talking about like Cecil fatigue. There were like so many stories about Cecil the line that people were almost like, there were almost too many of them. So I go to Delta and it's like, you know, can you imagine if the second line of every single one of those stories was that, oh yeah. And Delta airlines like transported Cecil's like illegally poached and butchered body back to the United States despite having been served with a petition with like half a million signatures asking them to stop that crap. Like you guys would look like morons and lose a crap ton of business. And so, uh, yeah, I was halfway through kind of updating the petition to talk about the Cecil thing and pulling calls. He's like, check your email, check your email, check your email. And, uh, there was a, there was a message from Delta saying, okay, we're, we're going to make this announcement. We're just giving you time to sort of get your ducks in a row and sort of get up, you know, uh, press release together and because you know it's going to hit pretty pretty fast and furious when we announce this so yeah they they announced it was august 3rd and uh in 2015 and uh within 24 hours both uh american airlines and uh united airlines so all three major u.s carriers announced that they would no longer transport african hunting trophies and certain others and i think now like 46 other airlines have jumped on board um very interesting because that very same day august 3rd was the day that the judge in the Idaho IGAG case announced, first announced that struck down the that was the first IGAG law to get struck down as unconstitutional. So it was mm. a pretty happy news day for ALDF. And it was just, this was you know early August. So I was already transitioning. My last day at ALDF was August fifteenth before I came here to Harvard to start the program on September first. Very cool. That's um, that's pretty amazing. 
just on the side doing some uh one schmuck flat on his ass in bed with pneumonia you know can still and i talk about that all the time there's so ildf does this uh um ranking of all the the u.s states and the canadian provinces based on the the strength of their animal protection laws and my home state of illinois is always number one which i'm very proud of um but the reason for that uh although I'd like to claim that it's just because people from Illinois are more enlightened. Uh, it's actually due to a, a woman named Leedy Van Cabbage, who's now this, I think the senior legislative director at best friends animal society. Um, and she formerly worked for the ASPCA was one of their national legislative directors. And she would always just like, she lived right outside Springfield, Illinois, where the state capital was. And she's like, heck, I'll just try it here first. And so she single-handedly uh, drafted and passed 24 pieces of humane legislation in Illinois, just one person. So people are always like, oh, I'm just one person. Mm. What, what the hell can I do? And the answer is a ton, a ton, a ton. That is an important message to take out of that, I think. You've got a guy at a heart surgery, <laughs> you know, complications after a lot of flying. You're able to do that. She's able to do groundbreaking work in a state on her own. Yeah. We can also you know, start to pick up things on the side. You don't have to give up, you know, your job or your, yeah. you know, your regular day-to-day life to, to do a little bit of stuff on the side if you are passionate about this. Sure. So, yeah, that was a, that was a sick story. I, yeah. I didn't, I didn't L- know. Literally sick, sick on yeah. my ass, sick in bed. <laughs> I didn't know the depths of that, but that, that was really <laughs> cool. So tying that in with the current climate around trophies and the political scene Mm -hmm. so from my understanding something kind of slid under the radar after it looked like it was not going to go forward it probably slid under the radar on some other bullshit story that we get bombarded with day to day yeah but yeah do you want to go into that a little bit yeah like so it was sort of announced that the uh, u.s fish and wildlife service were going to relax its standards on importing certain uh hunting trophies and um, so people reacted and immediately blamed Trump mm-hmm. uh, because he's head of administration. And, you know, Trump's very mercurial. You know, he's really uh, the the one thing he cares about is sort of his image and public opinion. Maybe the sole thing he cares about. Mm-hmm. I don't think he really yep. has any sort of moral and intellectual or whatever no. rudder. He I think he just like is just constantly reading the tea leaves and shifting sands and sticking his finger in the air and just saying whatever he thinks will resonate with voters generally or especially his base. Mm. Um, and which you think his base would, you know, the hunters tend to sort of skew a bit more conservative um, politically. And uh, so you would think, but yeah, there was such a strong backlash to that. And both of his sons are acclaimed, you know, or sort of, well-known hunting tro- hunt, uh, trophy, trophy hunters. hunters right and uh but yeah he was so worried about how bad that made him look that he was saying some really strong things like oh i can't see any we'll have to look into this but i can't see any justification there could possibly be for you know bringing in you know these you know elephant or uh lion trophies or whatever yeah, yep. lion trophies hunting trophies so it sounded pretty good and then he just sort of quietly softened that. And now they just said, well, they're going to address it on more of a case by case basis. So it wasn't a straight up policy shift in like relaxing the laws across the board. But you all know when it case by case means they're just going to do it when it's much, you know, individually when it's out of the public eye. So uh, I don't have any statistics on how the numbers have increased, but uh, I would be willing to bet that they have. So 
with the work that you did on getting the airlines to ban the travel or the, the transport of these trophies, how does that work now? Are they still going with that? Are they are they still do they still have the ban in effect? Does yes, it make they it do. And it was actually really good. It was interesting to see that uh <laughs> you just again like I was saying with these legislators who would say this like just like name calling and outright craziness. You're just glad that their siders usually the side our, our side is like often better prepared because it's it's doing because we really believe in it. It's like a sort of passion rather than just a job. Um and so the uh, trophy hunting community, Safari Club International, and some others, uh, Dallas Safari Club, I think, um, actually f- tried to file a lawsuit against uh, Delta Airlines because uh, for refusing and refusing to transport one of these hunting trophies. Now, Walter Palmer, the, the Minnesota dentist, essentially had to go into hiding, had to shut down his yep. dental practice, and, you know, just because he was such a pariah for this. So, you know, who do the trophy hunters decide to make the lead plaintiff in this lawsuit challenging Delta's uh, policy? Uh, it was a guy from Dallas who spent $350,000 to shoot one of the, like, the remaining white rhinos. Like, like, you could not come up with a worse plaintiff for that lawsuit other than Walter Palmer himself. You know what I mean? Like it, it just, it just shows how like just out of touch they are with, yeah. with society. Like, Oh, the, the other guy that everyone wants to sort of string up and like, you know, banish. Um, and yeah, he was complaining because Delta wouldn't transport this, the dead body of this thing that nobody in the world felt like should be killed anyway. Uh, and the lawyer was just so poor. Like I, I was reading this article, the, the, the going through the complaint and they kept basing everything on this one provision of the Federal Aviation Act that I just couldn't find. I'm like, am I missing something? And it's like, no, they just typoed it and referred, based their entire uh, legal complaint on a provision of the FAA that doesn't exist, you know, because they just typed in the wrong number. I mean, it's just like just like incredibly poor lawyering. So mm. it's pretty comical to see just how out of touch they were. And of course, it got thrown out. And we, we uh, reached out to Delta to see if they would want some legal assistance. Like, no, we got this. Thanks. And yeah, they did. They just, you know, just crushed, crushed them. It was pretty funny. So, they, you know, they're out there. But the, the reason I brought that up, because reading the complaint, it was really awesome because they actually said in there, had some numbers about how substantially... Because uh, a lot of people say, like, well, what's the big deal? People can still transport hunting trophy trophies via UPS or yep. FedEx or something. Um, but it's still yet another hurdle they have to go through. And, uh, you know, according to the complaint by, you know, in this lawsuit by all these trophy hunting groups, they were saying it had had a massive substantial impact on their business, mm-hmm. uh, on the outfitters and things like that. So it was kind of cool for them to see, like, just how effective that this ban actually had been. That's awesome. I mean... The, the mere fact that people get a kick out of spending that much money because it's a it's a thing isn't it it's like it's like a oh, yeah. it sounds like a freaking um you know amusement park yeah here's you what's go in and you pay exorbitant fees to to yeah. go in and have aim at yeah and the thing with Cecil too animal. he tried to claim you know even though Walter Palmer had himself been uh, convicted of uh, lying to a federal agent over a previous animal he killed in Wisconsin uh, illegally. Um, you know, he tried to claim like, oh, I had no idea it was that lion. You know, we didn't. And they, they knew exactly what he was. He, because he was, like I said, he got back 
you know, a few weeks before the story mm. broke and his own bartender actually sold him out saying he was showing people pictures of the body on his phone saying, I just killed Africa's most famous lion or something like that. You know, so he knew full well exactly what, what had been done there. Um, but what's interesting about this is that, you know, I think a, a lot of thing that drives these hunters is, you know, the definition of trophy. A trophy is something you show somebody else that you, you know, in order to sort of, you know, demonstrate to them what your accomplishments are. Uh, whether it's like, you know, whatever, uh, you know, yeah, some, you know, you know, childhood science contest or like a bike race or whatever. Um, you know, but trophy hunting societally is now so frowned upon that you have these trophy hunters are now like, there's so I'm from Champaign, Illinois. And, uh, you know, there's a a chain called Jimmy John's, uh, sort of sub sandwich chain Mm -hmm. and and Jimmy John himself is lives and still lives in Champaign and it's from there. And that's where that company's based. And all of a sudden all these photographs of him posing with all these, you know, exotic animals he'd killed serviced and he went crazy threatening to sue people and like, you know, demanding that they be pulled down. it's like, so, you know, half the reason these people are doing this is so they can show them to other people, but now like. No, they can't show them to anybody else because it's going to make them so like it's such a pariah. So it's it's kind of interesting. I think just societally, it's just sort of getting weeded out, you know. Yeah, so they're happy to show it to their community, but once it gets viral, they're you know shutting down dentistry practices and going into hiding, changing names. Yeah, you know whatever they can do to uh, avoid the the limelight. And that's you know, yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, for better or worse, you know, the internet is just, you know, an accelerant for information. Um, And it's been phenomenal. I mean, it's one of the the really things that's really driven the animal protection movement, because like I said, that that situation in Arizona where we're driving in, you know, 19,248 calls or emails into the governor's office on a couple days notice, like that certainly never would have been possible without the internet where you can sort of disseminate information, um, you know, tabulate public opinion and then direct it towards decision makers in such a short period of time. Mm. Um, so the other thing with the internet is just, there's just no secrets, you know what I mean? No. It's just, it's just no longer anything you can sort of like people just aren't allowed to sort of subterfuge or, or trade in sort of secrecy as much You'll as they dig want. It up. Yeah. It'll, it'll, it'll get, you know, it'll get exposed. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. It's definitely, yeah, it can go both ways. We could, you, you know, we could probably pull up some, blog on on just about any topic showing a bunch of false information sure. with you know followers and supporters but then on the other side we've got uh, a really good way of accelerating important information and and shifting opinion and and decision making ability yeah. so it is an image yeah, powerful tool yeah i mean images and video are just best you know, way yeah yeah it, so it evokes so emotion great. and yeah that's i think that's what gets people to click the share button is sure. the the imagery, the the sound, yeah. the, the documentary we watched last night was, I, I can't recommend it enough. Mm-hmm. The Ghost in Our Machine. It yeah. was for, you know, for someone that has watched, you know, your Earthling documentaries, Dominion, mm-hmm. um, which are the traditional ones that show, you know, the, the true violence that goes on around the world, different species that are involved. Yeah. You know, it shows the extent of it. This does show it in a different way. It doesn't highlight on the vi- the violence as much, uh, yet the yeah the the level of filmmaking ability, yeah. Joanne's photography, her story, the stories that they're able to show of, of these animals, yeah, I think that is amazing. I think I mentioned last night how 
I kind of say it half jokingly, but like, you know, um, if, if someone who had never picked up a musical instrument suddenly announced that they were going to write, uh, mm-hmm. you know, an opera about global warming, you know, it's probably going to suck cause they're not a musician. Um, but that seldom prohibits people in the realm of documentary filmmaking, yep. you know, they're like, Oh, I care really passionate about this issue. I'm going to make a documentary about it. And like, you know, it's probably going to suck if, you know, because you're not a filmmaker, you know, mm-hmm. it's an actual craft, um, just like songwriting or anything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's, what's so great about, about Ghost on Machine because Liz Marshall is, a, you know, the, a, an actual filmmaker. Joanne's an actual photographer. Um, and that was a great thing about, there was a film made about the Steve Wise and a non-human rights project called Unlocking the Cage. So Rattling the Cage was just sort of like stirring up these ideas and getting people to think about it. Unlocking the Cage is about them actually filing these lawsuits to, to, to try and liberate these animals. Um, and that was made by Chris Hedges and D.A. Panabaker, who, you know, are a, a, a long time really well-respected documentary filmmaking duo. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's, you know, so it's a great film, film too because it's actually has a great narrative structure because it's made by a filmmaker, so. Yeah, no, it really was fantastic. So back to, I mean, that point you just brought up about uh, the liberating of animals because so much of your work has been, you know, well, I suppose most people's work in this movement whether you're in law, you're an activist, you know, you're a filmmaker, an author, it's not really, you know, 100%. We're not liberating animals. I Do, don't know. I wouldn't say that. No? Okay. I mean, like, the entire time I spent in, you know, working in the, the years and years and years that LDF spent on the Tony the Tiger case was yep. to get his ass out of yeah. the cage. Yep. You know, that was the sole goal. And you see there's a, a Ben the Bear case that was really great. It was a, so North Carolina has this weird this anomalous provision uh, that allows citizens, if there's some sort of animal cruelty going, because one of the big problems with animal cruelty is actually getting local prosecutors to take it seriously enough and actually stop it and prosecute it. Um, so, because they're all usually state laws that are being applied. And so the, the local prosecutors will have discretion whether or not to, to pursue something. And so um, if in North Carolina has this weird provision called 19A where if you, if there's, if you, if you see that there's sort of some sort of animal cruelty going on, you can a, a regular citizen can just go before a judge and try and get an injunction to stop it. It's not saying, not saying you know, meanwhile, while this person may, be, may or not being prosecuted or may take a while, in the meantime, let's just get the animals out of there to sort of prevent what's going on. Um, and so that's been applied uh, several times. Uh, one with a, a big kind of hoarding puppy mill case. Another was mm-hmm. a case with a, that was a Woodley case uh, the LDF did. And then another. And the great thing about that is that it was the first time that was sort of used in a large manner where it it sort of anchored that as uh, you know just legal provision that it's it's actually viable and and was sort of like judicially sort of uh, ratified. I guess not ratified, but kind of upheld. I guess. Um, so then uh, PETA and ALDF also collaborated to get this bear uh, named Ben out of a roadside cage. Um, and he'd only ever lived on concrete and got him out to the Paws Sanctuary in California. And now he has this massive enclosure. And there's just like a wonderfully amazing tear-jerking video. Uh, my former colleague, uh, Carnia Nasser, uh, worked a lot on that case. And so she actually flew with FedEx um, 
provided a plane to transport him from North Carolina over to California for the sanctuary. They called it Bear Force One. And so she traveled with him and she got to film him like when he's being released on Standing on Grass for the first time in his life. And they've had this pool for him and he's just like splashing in there and just oh, getting I've, to be I've a bear. That. Yeah, it's that. just yeah. really amazing. But um, yeah, I hear what you're saying though. I mean, there's, you know. Uh, I was just going to ask if you struggle at all personally with the plight of, you know, the, the billions of animals that, do go through hell um do you struggle with the the direction you could you need to pull yourself in yeah i mean you know i'm like i said before uh i'm all for diversity i yep. I, I think we need as many approaches as possible yeah. uh all tackling this problem because you just never know which one's going to be successful yep and there is sort of like this false dichotomy so this rights versus welfare thing where you know it's usually only coming from some of the rights folks where mm-hmm. they say that they're like abolitionists and that anyone who's sort of improving the welfare of animals is only sort of further ingraining their exploitation. But that's just not how society works. You know, I mean, society just tends to sort of ratchet towards the better. Yep. Um, And that it's really rare to find any occasions where legal protections have sort of slid back. It just sort of ratchets and then, you know, so each one of these opportunities to pass these sort of, um, I saw a great presentation the other day at the animal law conference by Laura Hagan, who used to be here at the Massachusetts SPCA, um, who were one of the main proponents of the Massachusetts ballot initiative that passed in 2016. And she directly head on addressed this saying, you know, and, you know, I think PETA is opposing the one in California that's going to pass in the, on Tuesday. Um, I don't want to get all Nancy Pelosi, but yeah, it, it's very likely to pass. Mm. Uh, and so she addressed that head on and say, some people say, well, you know, this isn't really going far enough, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, you've got billions of animals that are suffering in these like really extreme conditions. I feel like, yeah, great. You want to bring an end to the all consumption of meat? Awesome. Call me in however many years when that happens. In the meantime, there's a crap ton of suffering happening here and now that we have the ability to alleviate. And I kind of feel we have a duty to alleviate, you know, um, it can sometimes be seen as a bit of a cop out to just like, okay, I'm just, I'm going to wait till everything's perfect before I do anything and not sort of rolling up your sleeves and kind of getting your hands dirty with the hard work of compromise. Cause you know, that's how anything moves forward in this country is compromise. For sure. You know, uh, there's a couple exceptions, but they're really rare and few and far between. So, Mm -hmm. uh, I think, um, yeah, that's sort of where I come down on that. I think, yeah, I'm, I'm all for Steve doing what he can to sort of achieve personhood or rights. That's fantastic. At the same time, I think it's equally as important for people to going out and making sure that, you know, baby veal calves don't spend their entire lives like tied to the ground by their neck. You know, yep. it's just, I, they're not mutually exclusive in my book whatsoever. No. And I, I, again, I don't think that one, it really sort of ingrains these things. Cause what Laura was saying in her presentation is that, you know, they calculated the number because they needed something like 120,000 signatures or so to get on the ballot. And then you need all these votes that the amount of actual person to person context, because people aren't going to sign a petition when they don't know what it is. I think California, they need like 600,000 plus signatures to get on the ballot. So that's 600,000 at the very minimum interactions between two people of one person informing the other about like the horrors of factory farming. So, Yes, you pass this law that's going to have this 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 impact, um, but yet you also then had a person walk away who may be thinking about these things that they never thought about before and may then decide themselves to stop eating meat or whatever. Um, 
that there's just a great value in just the public. And same thing with what Steve Wise is doing. You know, I mean, his story, the story about what he's doing was on the front page of the New York Times magazine, like it's the cover cover movement. story. And it's just like all of these things. Yes, the actual legal gains that they achieve are pretty great. But far beyond that is the impact they have on just increasing the general knowledge and public you know, awareness of these issues. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. That's <laughs> yeah, that's hard to argue against. So after that work um, with the animal defense, ALDF, yeah, Animal Legal uh, Defense Fund. Yeah, cool. I'm I'm struggling to get that one out. But you shifted to to Harvard after that. Yeah, so you know, what, what I was really happy doing the work at ALDF. I really enjoyed the hands-on legislative work and the kind of the coalition building with a bunch of other organizations. It was really meaningful, and I thought I would sort of keep doing that. Um, and then uh, this really rare opportunity came up here where, so as I mentioned, Harvard was only, back in 2000, was only the ninth school to teach an animal law course. Um, now I think 167 schools have taught a course in animal law, which is amazing. Um, the vast majority of those courses are taught by sort of adjunct practitioners, so lawyers who are working in the field who just kind of come in and teach the class, which is great because they have all the latest sort of knowledge from the trenches um, and a great working knowledge of animal law. Um, but the, the downside is that they don't really have any access to institutional resources to sort of hold uh, academic workshops or other things that really sort of drive the scholarship side of things forward. Um, so I think there's maybe five or six uh, people teaching animal law who are actual tenured faculty members. Um, so Professor Kristen Stilt was at Northwestern, and she was getting recruited to come here to Harvard to help oversee their uh, Islamic Legal Studies program. And... She was pretty happy in the Midwest, which I can relate to. Uh, and so she was able to kind of bargain and said, you know, well, one of the conditions is if I come here, I'm going to want to teach animal law. And uh, and so they said, great. Um, and so when she came here, uh, David Wilson um, saw the value. He's a person who's provided a lot of credit. He's written some really early, great early pieces on farmed animal uh, law and uh, has been a great advisor to the movement in many different capacities. But he, he sort of saw the value in that and that, that now here we have a, a tenured faculty, not only a tenured faculty member teaching animal law, but doing it at a, at a top five school. So he went out and found a donor, uh, Bradley Goldberg, from the Animal Welfare Trust to sort of put up the funding to sort of build like a mini department around Kristen here at Harvard. Um, and so I was one of the only alumnus, uh, alumni of the school uh, who of Harvard Law School had gone on to really do anything in the field. Uh, the other is Justin Marceau, who has the only endowed chair in animal law. He's at the University of Denver. And uh, he's actually the lead attorney on all the ag-gag litigation. Um, so, and there's another woman named Piper Hoffman who had done some work as well. Uh, but I was the only one really in a position to, to be able to, to come back and, and do something like this. And I do think it is important for buy-in both internally at the law school and with students and everything to have someone who has sort of walked in their shoes. And I still had a lot of relationships here from, from being a student and being a very non-traditional student who did law school over the course of 12 years <laughs> and sort of still knew a bunch of folks. And so, yeah, um, you know, I, 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 I said to Steve at ALDF that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm moving uh, to a city I don't really like for a bunch less money. This isn't like I just saw someone prettier walk by, you know, uh, this is something I really do feel I'm really was uniquely positioned to be able to come back and help, uh, help Kristen get off the ground. So I'm yeah, very, very happy that I did. 
So what are, you, what are the students able to get out of uh, the courses that you offer here at Harvard? Yeah, well, you know, there's sort of three kind of legs of the stool, as I see them, uh, of the program and what we do. So the first is exactly that, sort of increasing both the, uh, uh, the, the educational and professional opportunities for students. Um, the other two, real quick, are sort of uh, increase both the, the quantity and quality of academic scholarship in the field and um and kind of having harvard as a, as a platform to educate broader communities about these issues um so on the student side we you know we do a bunch so we we have we've had the annual animal law course we've added courses already in wildlife law and farmed animal law and policy um we have students participate in uh, a lot of research projects that either we're doing as a program or a professor still its own research uh, she's currently writing a book about halal animals and sort of religious slaughter um we do uh, provide a lot of career uh, guidance and counseling. We do an annual trip to Washington, D.C., uh, kind of a student career trip where we're visiting all these different animal protection groups down there um, so they can kind of get a feel for the environments and meet a lot of the people that are involved. Um, uh, we also assist them in landing like internships and externships with outside animal protection groups. Um, and we work together with them on a sort of speaker series and, and things like that. Um, as far as the scholarship goes, the main driver of that is academic workshops. So we'll come up with, a, on the on the quali- quantity side, we'll pick a topic that we think is sort of deserving of more attention. We'll put out a call for abstracts, and people will then submit uh, papers to be considered. And then we'll select from among those, they'll go out and write a full paper, and then we bring everyone into a room, and they read each other's stuff, and then they kind of beat each other's scholarship up to make it stronger for publication. So that increases sort of the... The, the quality side. Um, we did a manuscript review workshop for Justin Marceau, the guy I mentioned, who's an alum, who's, who's written a book about sort of the intersection of criminal law and animal law and how it's sort of at this sort of schism point of, uh, you know, pushing for increased penalties because we well, traditionally wanted animal cruelty to be taken more seriously. But meanwhile, the entire rest of the animal of the criminal justice system is moving the other direction and wanting to reduce incarceration and, you know, reduce the uh, number of felonies just because they so disproportionately impact, you know, communities of color and other, other folks. So uh, that's going to be a really fascinating book. Um, and then, like I said, the third thing is just, you know, having Harvard as this platform, being able to sort of host, mm. we held a massive conference here on the 50th anniversary of the Animal Welfare Act, uh, where we had like 30 plus speakers and 250 different attendees. We did another conference last January on um, kind of the future of laboratory animal law. Um, I'm about to probably be part of a, a commission um, through the National Academies of Sciences examining whether or not uh, the Veterans, Veterans Administration should still continue doing uh, lab experimentation on dogs. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's really, uh, and we have, again, have a, uh, an ongoing speaker series. We have about 15 to 20, uh, speakers here each year, kind of like the film you yep. saw yesterday with Joanne. Um, and, uh, yeah, we just, it's a great, uh, it's a, you know, we produced a very large, uh, well-received report on uh, the King amendment to the U S farm bill. Uh, Steve King's a guy who, he is the, large, the country's largest egg producers in his district, so he tries to insert this thing into the farm bill each time it comes up, trying to uh, negate all these ballot initiatives I've told you about, where you know the populace are able to kind of pass their own laws, um, which is anathema to them. He wants to go back to the old days where people don't have any direct democracy, and wants to sort of undercut all of those. So, um, last I heard, he was in a one-point race for his own seat in Iowa. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see, uh, if that goes away. So yeah, we, we hired a, a fellow specifically to work on, 
a report on the sort of unintended consequences or ancillary impact of what that might look like if you all of a sudden say no state can pass any restrictions on agricultural products produced in other states. Um, and yeah, I think we identified 3,200 different state and local laws that could potentially just be nullified under the King Amendment. So um, yeah, it was really impactful, especially in this current climate with sort of Republican legislators, legislators on the Hill mm-hmm. um, seeing that. So our next step is that we want to hopefully next year launch a animal law and policy clinic, which would be like a mini law firm within the law school where students will get course credit and be obligated to spend 20 hours per week working directly on either real-time litigation or policy projects like the, the King Amendment report or things like that. So um, that's going to be a really exciting next step for us. And we've already, we're moving into a whole brand new building here on campus uh, in a couple of weeks. So we've got the, the space and we've just received a, a very generous gift that will allow us to uh, get the program, get the clinic off the ground. So hopefully we'll start next September. Yeah, that's that all sounds really amazing. And um, I echo that. Harvard is a you know a really good platform for for not just students of the school. Uh, moving here five years ago, I definitely wasn't interested in anything to do with you know veganism or hmm. or animal law. Um, but yeah, not long after making the decision to to go vegan, Rachel invited me to the Ivy League conference. Yeah, we'll put that on for sure. Yeah, so you've got plenty of cool things open to the public. You know, I've been to a number of other talks. Um, I think David Carter was here, the yeah. NFL, ex-NFL player. And then, all week, yep. Yeah, and then uh, Joanne MacArthur, the photographer, which was really cool for me personally, being a yeah. photographer, um, opening my mind to, to some different things. So, And you never know who you're going to reach. Like the woman who is one of our best students, who's uh, the co-president of the Animal Law Student Group, she came here to work on a completely different issue, like sort of gender violence issues. Mm-hmm. And um, we showed Unlocking the Cage, and she came to that, and just this light bulb went off. I mean, she'd been raised vegetarian, been vegan mm. for a long time, and just had never really been exposed to the idea that she could can combine her love of, of animal issues with, with law. Yes. Um, and it just totally you know, changed the trajectory of her career, you know? Yep. Justin Marceau, like, strutting through the hallway, sees a flyer on the wall for the animal law class in 2004, decides to take it now again he's this you know mm. tenured faculty member law professor with the only endowed chair in the country so my, my first year classmates here included uh ted cruz uh one of george soros's sons uh the current attorney general in north carolina um you just never know you went to school with ted cruz i did uh that's for sure. uh, we can talk about that another time yeah so but it was just cool <laughs> you just never know i mean the one thing commonality here is people have really big memories so you just never know who's gonna yeah. be sitting in one of your classes or sitting through one of your lectures and what they're gonna go on to do in their lives and maybe even if you know there's certainly a core committed group of students here that want to make their career in animal law mm-hmm. have to be, there's gonna be a lot of other people that you know may find themselves in umpteen other positions and th- this information will stick somewhere yeah so wrapping this Wrapping this thing up, um, kind of what you just said, I think whatever your passion is to the listener, you are able to, I think you can find an angle which is needed in this movement. Mm -hmm. New things just keep popping up that I keep seeing that I maybe didn't pair with. Cellular agriculture. Yeah, everything is moving so quickly that, new positions are needed all the time so specifically to academics and your position at harvard where do you see academics playing a role 
in the future? Where can it go? Where can it lead? Yeah. Well, I mean, again, you know, I think one of the reasons the King Amendment report we put out was so impactful was because seeing that it came out of Harvard Law School, it's anyone who's getting that report in their hands knows that it is going to be a so thoroughly vetted and that the quality of the research is going to be just airtight, that nothing's going to come out the door here that isn't 100% airtight. Um, and so having that sort of credibility and being able to lend that credibility to a lot of these issues um, is, is really important. Uh, and, you know, because academia is sort of one of the last passions that is seen as having some sort of objectivity to it. Uh, uh, certainly political influences do, do, do exist, but there is a sort of academic integrity and sort of objectivity that does come into play uh, that I think is immensely valuable. And, and, and legal scholarship. I mean, you know, when you're drafting a, a complaint or an appellate brief uh, on any sort of piece of lit- litigation, um, you're looking for other authorities that you can reach out to that will sort of undergird your your argument. And so if you've had, like, you know, Justin Marceau had a, an article by Agex that was published in Columbia Law Review, one of the sort of more prestigious legal journals in the country. So some judge who doesn't know anything about animal law is going to be reading through and it's like, oh, wow, they're citing to, you know, one of the most prestigious journals. This must be legitimate. Um, yeah, I think there's, there's just great value. And also just in sort of being an incubator and thinking things through. I mean, as I said, with clean meat or cellular agriculture, um, you know, that's something that could make half the other stuff we've talked about obsolete over the course of a couple decades, mm. uh, just completely obviate the, ne- the necessity to sort of raise, transport, and slaughter animals for food. Um, even the big meat companies like Tyson and Cargill see the value. Yep. Like They don't like having to waste all that time and energy and money. If they could just produce the same product with a much less waste, why wouldn't they? The, the, the CEO of Tyson himself is like, why wouldn't we do that? Um, so we actually held, but there's, you know, there's some, still some like hurdles to get past, one of them being how the regulatory state uh, deals with that. So when the other great thing, power of like schools like this, uh, we have this great ability to convene. So we held a closed doors regulatory roundtable on clean meat and cellular agriculture that included the heads of several of the companies involved, several advocates, a bunch of scholars, and, you know, former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture all in a room just like, okay, let's really think hard and speak really openly, honestly, and frankly about what the potential pitfalls are and try and hammer out a rational uh, path through all of this for the uh, regulatory path forward. So things like that are just really helpful as well, um, different ways that we can contribute. Cool. It sounds like a really exciting time for Mm -hmm. Harvard and also animal law. Um, I want to thank you for your time today. It was good to learn. It was amazing to learn some more because I think this was a topic or, you know, a, a field that I knew next to nothing about before coming into today. So that's really what we're cool. here for. Yeah, really cool to hear about. And I look forward to attending uh, more yeah, more events that you're holding at Harvard, Chris. Thanks so much. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Matt. And I'm excited that you were able to come in and spend some time with us. Cheers, man. Thank Cheers. you very much. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. Thank you to all of you who joined me today. I really enjoyed this conversation and hope you did as well. Did you know much about animal law prior to the show? I certainly didn't myself and was intrigued 
by Chris's stories from his time practicing, particularly what he was able to do post-heart surgery from his bed, goes to show that we can all make an impact. I'd like to also thank those of you who have left a review and a rating for the show. I really do appreciate it. It certainly helps the Veg Talk podcast grow and reach more people around the world. I look forward to chatting with you all next week, and I'll see you then.